Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy and welcome to If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. I'd like to start today's podcast with a quote. What is Glasgow to most of us? A house? A park? A golf course? Some pubs and connecting streets? That's it. No, I'm wrong. There's also a cinema and the library. And if our imagination needs exercise, we use these to visit London and Paris. Those words come from the pen and creative genius of Alistair Gray, the subject of today's exciting conversation. The great Scottish writer and artist sadly died in December 2019, just a day after his 85th birthday, but he leaves an inspiring legacy for all to share. A lifetime's work which continues to invite a reimagining of Glasgow. Alistair Gray was born in Ridgery, in Glasgow's northeast, in December 1934. His childhood visits to Kelvin Grove Museum had fueled fantasies about escaping to imaginary worlds. But he never wanted to leave Glasgow, and as an adult, actively avoided the lure of making fame and fortune in London. His seminal work, the much-acclaimed novel, Lanark, A Life in Four Books, moves through time and space, but never really leaves the recognisable reality, or perhaps surreality, of Glasgow, and some say especially when it becomes the damp and dreary dystopia of Unthank. Yet the book also challenged, and shaped, a different way of seeing Glasgow. In one oft-quoted passage, the centre of Glasgow is seen through patches of sunlight from a windy hillside, which I think is Garnet Hill, and this is an exchange between Duncan Thor, the protagonist of the book, and his friend McAlpine. Glasgow is a magnificent city, said McAlpine. Why do we hardly ever notice that? Because nobody imagines living here. Think of Florence, Paris, London, New York. Nobody visiting them for the first time as a stranger, because he's already visited them in paintings, novels, history books and films. But if a city hasn't been used by an artist, not even the inhabitants live there imaginatively. So like the opening quote, that's from page 243 of Lanark, as today's guest can tell us without a moment's hesitation. Welcome to Sorsha Dallas, curator of the Alistair Gray Archive. The archive was, almost miraculously, moved to the Whiskey Bond just three months after Alistair's death, and secured just a day before lockdown in March 2020. So Saoirse Dallas first met Alistair Gray in 2007, at a time when she was establishing a personal reputation as an enterprising and innovative young gallery owner, bringing the work of contemporary artists to a wider world. She already knew a great deal about the older artist. Like so many other Glasgow School of Arts graduates, she'd been inspired by reading Lanark. It's great to have you on the podcast, Saoirse, and we know you have an extraordinary story to tell about the founding of the archive and how the work of Alistair Gray continues to inspire new imaginings now and for the future. So first off, in our first question, perhaps you can start telling us more about your working relationship with Alistair Gray, how it came about and developed over the course of, how long was it, 13 years? 
Um, thank you, Neil. Uh, lovely to be here today. Yes. So my work in relationship with Alistair goes back to 2007. And as you said, I was at that time running a commercial gallery. Um, although my interest with his work, as you also mentioned, um, began many years before. Um, I remember, like many fellow art students, reading Lanark and it was such a formative experience for me, but also living um, within the West End of Glasgow and encountering his murals and West End bars and lanes um, and occasionally glimpsing you know his carefully designed books in John Smith's bookshop too so I guess I was really aware from uh, the beginning of his very expansive practice but what I really wanted to do and because of my background was highlight the visual and put it on um, the same fitting really as the literary as a literary work because Alistair um, did go to Glasgow Stu School of Art. He studied mural, mural making and stained glass and he would always describe himself um, as an artist who fell into writing. That's really where the opportunities happened for him. But for many people, the only way that they were really able to encounter his visual work was through through the publications, through these uh, beautifully designed book jackets or plates that he would uh, dot within the text themselves. So I guess um, when I came in and started working with him, he was thinking about getting his visual archive in order because he was in the process of starting to work on A Life in Pictures, which right. was a kind of seminal book, a visual biography told in his own words and using um, using the images that he created throughout his life to, to describe his story. So he was getting that together with Canongate. So I came in and helped mm -hmm. organise and work on that with him. And really then from that, um, I really wanted to try and reposition his, his work, his visual work, put it on the same fitting as the literary, but you can't really separate mm -hmm. them. They're fully intertwined. So, Absolutely. Um, uh, so it's very much about you know promoting his work and um, getting it bought into major collections and then really from that I started to work with Glasgow Museums to coincide with his 80th birthday on the Alistair Gray season which was a kind of citywide series of exhibitions uh, with the kind of jewel in the crown being the retrospective um, from the personal to the universal that was um, at Kelvin Grove um, so I guess uh, from the start um, I, I'd, I'd seen how um, what a, a a, a, a large body of work he'd amassed over kind of 70 year periods in terms of his visual work and it was very much mm -hmm. about um, bringing that front and centre and also showing the connections between the visual and the literary because you know as you said you quoted a section there from Lanark and that was like a, um, a book that took 30 years to to create and to resolve but of course during that time he's reimagining the city in other ways through murals, through paintings, through, through prints and drawings and it's mm -hmm. that kind of inter intertwining between the visual and the literary um, that I think makes him so distinct and so unique um, as, as a creative. Mm -hmm. Ab absolutely. I mean, for me, Lanark, I mean, it was a complete revelation. I mean, I went to Glasgow School of Art too, though I was in the Macintosh School of Architecture section. But so I didn't read it until later on, mainly because so many people had inadvertently put me off by telling me it was this incredibly <laughs> difficult book to read. Mm -hmm. And then when I did get to it, which was in my mid thirties, I didn't really find it difficult at all. Mm -hmm. I absolutely lapped it up. I thought it was a fab fabulous book, but it's, it's to me, maybe it was better that I left it until later because mm -hmm. knowing Glasgow much better by then, I could totally connect with how he saw the city and the things that were happening in the city in the book and, and how Unthank operated as well with this mirror Glasgow. That was fascinating to me because you could see 
how that, that kind of surreal take on Glasgow kind of totally connected with what was happening in Glasgow during that 25 to 30 year period that he was writing it. And things like the comprehensive development areas where tenements would just disappear overnight and yeah. the, the inhabitants would disappear as well. You could see how the city's kind of unwinding and he captures that so well. And I think that's the, the best um, example I can think of of how anyone has kind of captured what Glasgow mm. went through in that period. And Lanark does it absolutely brilliantly. Yeah, really interesting I, as, as, as well. Sorry, sorry, but kind of jump back in there. But when you see he was, he was trained in stained glass... And you yes, can see and mural making. Yes, yeah, you can you can see in his use of line and his confidence of line where that all that comes from. It's fascinating. Really, I, I, I should probably put a disclaimer in that I don't know how much stained glass he actually makes. He made. Right. He was you know he didn't make really stained glass. He was definitely more focused within the mural making. But yeah, your um, what you I guess what's characteristic of stained glass is this very sharp defined outline, which is also um, a unique style within. Um, uh, I guess in, in terms of book making and illustration and if you think about Alistair's first encounter with storytelling in the visual and written form that was in childhood books where you know there was a text and a passage and then there was a, a visual representation of that that was often very stylized and very kind of graphic and very simple in its execution and you can I think you can really see that that kind of early influence of graphic art and illustration on it on his work which obviously you know was he, actually later in his life through a good friend of his he ended up working with her on a stained glass panel but um yeah it's interesting that you pick up on that because it's a similar usage of line isn't it exactly they're, they're like the cartoons that you see having seen cartoons of some of the kind of the, the great works of because glasgow is obviously a you know major center for stained glass having seen some of those cartoons of people's work you can see that same use of lines it was obviously trained in it at some points so that's really very, very interesting. Yeah, but I think, you know, the mural making for me really shapes everything about what he's wanting to do and picks up on the point that you raised earlier in terms of Alistair. I mean, there's many things that he's doing in his work. One is creatively creatively responding to things that exist already. So if you read Lanark, mm. you can see the list of plagiarisms. It's, it's in, it's, his work <laughs> is in, it's in conversation with work that, uh, you know, nothing's made in a vacuum and it's very much having a very participatory exchange with things that have happened before. But it's also so um, exactly as you as you said before, trying to fix and capture disappearing things that are happening, disappearing people, disappearing places. And that period, um, if you think about kind of Lanark and what he was working on around the same time, like the City Recorder series that he did for the People's Palace through for Glasgow Museums, trying to fix um, a, a particular period in uh, the social history of the city too, which he's mapping and recording, which, you know, we've got um, we've got material because um, we're in the, ar- the archive is located in Applecross by the Firth and Fourth Canal. And we look out the window at the old Applecross building and some of the old um, uh, you know mill buildings around there that have been since sort of taken over by Scottish Canal and we can see them reflected and drawn 40-50 years earlier by Alistair so he's walking he's walking in this area but he's also living at the time up near the art school at Garnet Bank so that whole part of the city was part of the same neighbourhood he described as walking from Garnet Bank but as you said the planning particularly the motorway what that did to the city in terms of cutting off areas um, sectioning off communities and locating areas um, it's hard now walking in those footsteps to imagine what that was yes, once yeah, like yeah yeah you have you have to know what the city was like beforehand so and that whole conversation with the McAlpine I think happens 
I'm, I could be wrong, of course. I think it happens kind of where the Hill Street viewpoint roughly is now, because you see that kind of fabulous panorama of, uh, of Trinity College and Park Circus, and especially when you see that in kind of the sunset, and it's beautiful. Yeah, you wouldn't be wrong in thinking it was drawn from there, but it's actually not. It's we've it's drawn from the clay the clay pits um, from the viewpoint the just of the clay pits. Right. Um, so which is and that, beautiful. Uh, equally beautiful and obviously the work that Scottish canals have been doing um, around that area over the last few years has really brought it back as an area for people to really recreationally enjoy in different ways so yeah there's actually a pathway up to the viewpoint and we went back recently because we have got the passage that you quoted we've got an, a drawing that Alistair made which is a visual representation of that uh, of that passage and we went back to to look at it and to try to position it and it is made from that viewpoint but equally as much as it looks like a naturalistic drawing Alistair's taken stylistic uh, license and he's moved buildings around and he's re it, it reimagined it even in that sketched form um, but yeah it's great yeah, it's great um, yeah we're hoping to do a bit more about that to really bed the material that we have into that landscape and show the relationship and the connection to it not just in the formation of Lanark but if you know Alistair's largest painting Cow Caddens in the in the 1950s that he did in 1964 that is a depiction of Garnet Bank extending up to the area in which we are, are in you can see Apple Cross House and the Firth and Forth Canal within that drawing so it's all part of the same language that he's writing about in Lanark and he's he's drawing in some of these artworks like Cow Caddens too so it's it's kind of fascinating from a you know from a social history point of view too to go back and walk in a footsteps yeah, yeah because it's this whole kind of part of the city that's kind of disappeared and trying trying to yeah re it's a jigsaw you have to piece together again it is and i guess there's you know there's layers of that isn't there like who and what has been disappeared and why what has mm. been the motivation politically socially oh, totally. and totally. you know creatively for those things to happen i think alistair was always really determined to do that to try and fix people that um you know and almost keep them alive keep those stories often overlooked and, and marginalized too within the work mm. so um there's something you know political and social that he's doing um, within that too Fascinating. Okay, moving on to our second question. So, Alistair Gray died on 29th of December 2019, so one day after his 85th birthday. And um, you've said that it felt like the end of things. And yet, somehow, you know, within three months, you'd help secure a new big beginning for this astonishing archive of art artifacts mm -hmm. and books at the Whiskey Bond. And this is in March 2020, just before the lockdown. How did you manage that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was it was an intense period, but I think I really went into protection mode um, because I knew Alistair. You know, he lived his life by socialist principles, so he was always struggling to pay the to pay the rent to pay other people because he really relied heavily on assistance to work alongside him. But you know, he didn't own his flat. It was owned by his second wife, Morag McAlpine, and um, sadly she died prior to, to Alistair. So I think you know the way it was set up. Um, he was given a lifetime's lease to live in the flat um, after she died, but it reverted then back to her family and to her will. So we were that was kind of the prompt to it. The fact that we didn't have time. You know, you hear about every archive's different, every estate's different. I think the long we, we had if there was maybe an indefinite period we might still be there sifting through things but it prompted me to really to go into protection mode quite quickly and to think about what is achievable that I can sort of list and catalogue who can I bring in to help me support to support me with that and how can we um, 
keep it safe moving forward. So there was a few conversations that kind of um, happened early on. One with, for example, like the National Library Service to look at the kind of literary materials. The Glasgow School of Art came in and helped in regards to the library. And then the Scottish National Galleries came in. They um, helped by um, assisting me with an arch archivist, Kirsty Meehan, who came in and helped me list the artwork. So we tried to capture as much as we could. Um, the areas that we couldn't capture in full detail, like some of the library elements, because there was just books everywhere. Um, we, we photographed it we also did a 360 degree recording of it you know we captured all the information we needed so that we could uh, once it was relocated we could continue to go back through that and archive and accession it really but you know it was going to the government to sort of say um, this needs protected can you help me time is of the essence and fortunately they did step in to do that and um, as you mentioned it was we managed to pack everything up move it out get it into the whiskey bond and then we went into into lockdown and that was such a strange period I kept thinking I wonder what Alistair would have thought about all of this at such a kind of <laughs> strange time because as we were packing up we could feel this wave of like COVID coming towards Britain and about to hit so we were kind of bracing yeah, ourselves really for something time. it was and to you know now to reflect on that is hard isn't it because we've all been through it and we've experienced it but it was um, fortunately we managed to get in and get everything secure but you know it's worth saying that um, when I started to work with Alistair, he was in his um, early 70s. So I was very much aware of uh, of thinking about legacy. And during his lifetime, we set up a foundation and we captured what he wanted to happen to the work posthumously um, in terms of creating education, learning opportunities from it. And that is what the archive is based on. So it's not, it's, you know, not me or others interpreting what Alistair would have liked. So we've got his um, intentions at the heart of everything that we do. Um, and equally, you know, it's got to be a generative resource. It's about making people aware of his work and also the web of influence around him because he works alongside others. But as we'd said earlier, his... Um, his whole interest creatively was responding to things that happened before. So it's very important to create that opportunity for others in his name. So for them to come in to respond creatively to what Alistair's left, and that can be a, in a respectful or like an interrogative way. That's how it should be. And that keeps it um, being generative. It keeps it being fresh. It keeps these new perspectives and stories um, being able to be added into it as well. Um, so, but yeah, it was a it was a very kind of strange time. I guess in many ways, I was for, I felt kind of fortunate that then there was a period of um, things slowed down. Uh, once it was safe to be able to go into uh, the whiskey bond, I quite enjoyed having that slow pace to be able to really reflect on what was there and also maybe to grieve in a way too because it was so quick that um, I went into kind of protecting it. That in many and in many ways, I feel that Alistair's still so alive for me because you know every week I'm discovering new things. I'm always learning, um, but it helped me come to terms with the loss of him not being there. But what what was what remained was the work, um, and really to think about um, how I could protect and fix that, not just for now, but for for the future too. Fascinating. Um, okay, that brings me on to my next question, which I'm quite interested in because, as, as mentioned before the start, I, I lived right next door to Alistair. Um, so, you know, I'm intrigued as to how, how this works, but um, the, the archive invites visitors into Alistair's front room. So can you, as part of this, can you take us inside and perhaps 
describe your own first visit to Alistair's flat in Marchmont Terrace? Yeah, so obviously it's worth saying that the archive is, um, you know, it's not set up in Alistair's uh, last place of residence. It's a part recreation of his living space at Marchmont Terrace. Um, and many of the objects that were in his flat travelled with him through the various homes that he lived in within the West End of Glasgow. Um, so that last home in Marchmont Terrace was probably his most comfortable. Um, that's because, you know, Morag was a woman of independent means. She was a librarian, a bookseller. She bought that flat. It was quite comfortable. There was a um, kitchen and bedroom to the back, um, a, a toilet area, and then a, a comfortable front living room, which she quickly commandeered as a, as a working studio space. Huge but if, front living if, rooms. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but if you reflect on previous flats to that, it was often bed sits, you know, where um, all life and art were fully intertwined. Um, but what, what's lovely um, and what we have at the archive is obviously key objects which have travelled with him through these homes. So like the rug, like his green chair, which he, he used to sit on when he was working. Editors did, secretaries, it, um, a lot of models sat on it when he was drawing them. It, it even appears in, in a mural as a, as a throne within one of his murals too. We've got his desk that he found discarded on the street and he brought lovingly brought into his home um, drilled it into his wall and, and it traveled with him again through home to, um, from home to home we've got all the shelves that he had up in his room which were recycled from floorboards that he found um, out by a, a, a midden uh, one afternoon too so a lot of these objects really as much as of course we're not in Alistair's home anymore but because we've re reinstated a version of it they they have these echoes and these histories and these stories too so they're very emotive as objects and also it makes the archive different maybe from what people expect uh, when they walk in I guess if you think of an archive you maybe think of things behind um, plastic or in boxes kind of stored away we have got an element of that but when you walk in it is like walking into Alistair's front room and you know for me I re vividly remember the first time I walked over that threshold and um, it was a life-changing moment for me and I never um, I never took for granted every other occasion that I was able to walk and enter into that space because what you were wa walking into was the inner workings of Alistair Gray's mind. You could look at his bookshelf and see the way he's kind of curated or put books together. You could see his artworks in various states of completion. You could see... Um, uh, cassettes that he was listening to he didn't have you know a cd player he didn't have a tv he would listen to the radio or to cassette players uh, tapes as well you'd see little objects and material studio ephemera and i think neil you were saying that you used to walk up and and look in because it was ground floor like lots of people did and you would have seen at the bay window the plan chest with all the yes, paintbrushes yes, yeah um, absolutely yeah and it was it very well yeah i think lots <laughs> of people do i've had loads of people saying that that would that would kind of mark their you know their route home from work if they could swing past and peer in and see what Alistair Gray was was getting up to. Yep, yep. I was I was far too intimidated to ask, but <laughs> I know. Um, and I think a lot of people did. They felt, oh, I, you know, it's so intriguing. I wish, I wonder what it was like on the other side. And I guess we've given people an opportunity opportunity to see what that's like. And I think it's also just fascinating. Um, it's real insight into um, a creative imagination and way of working that you're able to see. And, and I also think it makes his work accessible in a different way because, you know, he was um, so hand to mouth in terms of his existence that he's he's making this these extraordinary worlds, he's world building on this universal scale in a way, but he's using very ordinary stuff that we all have lying around, pens, pencil, a lot of tipex, um, recycled bits of paper. You know, he's prompted by economics 
using and recycling what he's got around him. And that's really inspiring, I think, for people to see it's, you know, he's not uh, got a massive studio and a workforce of 10 helping him and he's spending X amount per month on materials. He's really couldn't, not. Couldn't agree more, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Fa- fascinating. I mean, it, it just sounds like a, it's a really enticing invitation to come and visit you at the archive. Well, it's it is open to everyone. I mean, obviously, as I described, it's not a huge space because it's uh, a part recreation of the front room. So, but uh, anyone who's interested can get in touch through social media, through the website, and arrange a visit. Um, and obviously, it's been brilliant over the last year, in particular because of restrictions easing, being able to welcome people, uh, groups, and or or one on one. And you know, if you're an Alistair Gray super fan, you're welcome. If you don't know anything about Alistair Gray, you're welcome. Absolutely, I'd be. I, 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 yeah, it would be a ni- nice escape from the office. So, and talking about that, question number four: uh, What can you tell us about Alistair Gray's own escapes? You know, firstly from from Ridgery. Um, and what can you tell us about his other passions, such as libraries or his favourite haunts in Glasgow or things he didn't like in Glasgow? Yeah, I mean, he, uh, I think, you know, libraries, he would talk about libraries being like his un- university in a way it was. Uh, and he was always so passionate about and so behind libraries and the importance of them um, and of education too, really. But um libraries gave him access I guess now we've got um you know if I think about a young Alistair Gray eight or nine living in Ridgery and going to the library and the kind of world that that opened up to him he could take a book down and he could be transported to a real or fantastical place through his opening a book we I mean we can do that now on the internet can't we but um it's it's a transformative power of of literature and the the universal right I think that we all have to be able to live imaginatively and he passionately believed in that and he also believed in the cornerstone of a civilised society is is education too and that we have to value that uh, um, much better in this country as well. Yeah very very much yes I wonder what you'd think about you know what happened subsequently over lockdown with the libraries and all of those kind of issues that would have really touched a nerve with him. He would and you know I think you know he was obviously a Someone had asked me a while ago, like, what were the conditions to make an Alistair Gray? You know, could you make another one? And I guess, of course, you can make, you can, there's different catalysts. He was quite a particular uh, product of, of his time. And I think coming out of, um, you know, the First, Second World War and this idea that he, I think there was a real hopefulness of building back a country better that was about collectivity, you know, the NHS, free schools, free education. There was a real hopefulness that drove that, that he never um, he never was jaded by. He always believed that that was possible and achievable, but it was a, it was about us having to live differently, uh, which he obviously did. You know, he, he didn't, he wasn't driven by material gain. It was about making and a kind of economy around supporting others in an equal way. Um, and I think there was always, he never, that's what I find, always really inspiring he was never jaded there was always that hopefulness that he had of of in people and in people being able to reflect and 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 do better and be better and I think that's a really inspiring way to be um you, you'd asked also earlier about what did he use to escape I guess it's kind of quite well known that he would escape from this very busy brain by uh, going to the pub that was a, a one way that he managed to get out of his very very busy brain but another way that he escaped the chat the chatter that happened constantly I think in his mind was through playing chess and that was a really good way for him to sort of dull um dull his um 
busy brain and also often when he was having a problem if he was stuck at a bit of writing or a mural he would play chess to help kind of unlock and solve solve some of those creative issues that he was having fascinating my dad is a really serious chess player so i can kind of (laughs) understand that didn't didn't rub off on me unfortunately but (laughs) (laughs) well there's a chess board at the archive if you fancy (laughs) i think i probably still know some moves but um okay um talking about alistair's mural then and his own kind of physical mark on, on Glasgow with the murals he produced around the city. What, what do they say about both him as an artist and the city? Um, maybe we could start by looking at his, his work in Oran Moor and um, that kind of reimagining of Glasgow and um, the mapping of the city and how it describes the ordinary lives of people in disappearing places. Yeah, I mean, that's what all his work does, really. And, and the murals... Um, uh, in a very particular way because, you know, they're civically sighted. So it's the idea of them being physically placed within um, within an environment where everyone can access them. And that is really important. You don't need to, you know, walk over the threshold of a gallery or, you know, they're out there in the world for everyone to enjoy. And I think there's something really powerful um, that he does in Oramor and he does um, in the SPT Hillhead mural and he does in the Ubiquitous Chip mural too, where he's using ordinary people and what that does to someone seeing themselves uh, reflected back you know it's 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 he, he did it also in the city recorder series from 1977 he was commissioned at that time by Elsmith King who was then curator at the people's palace to go out and record um the just the people and places of Glasgow which is now fascinating to go back and look at what's there what remains and what's been disappeared but he again thinking of equity of experience he went out and he he drew um councillors and politicians and heads of different faiths alongside artists and um, writers and uh, secretaries, unemployed people, factory workers, everyone was given equal status. And I think the murals that we're talking about uh, within the West End do a similar thing. It's, you know, Ardenmore I love in particular, the mirrors you've got from the management staff to the builders to the bar staff to the cleaners, everyone is given their place and everyone is seen as an important and equally contributing to to that community um, and that I guess that goes back again to sort of socialist um, principles that underpin everything um, and how powerful that is and I think that's such a powerful thing you know we're doing a little bit of work within schools and of course at secondary schools a lot of um, uh, the young people are, are able to read per things or they're able to read Lanark primary schools obviously not so much but it's that idea of what's he doing he's taking stories that um people don't maybe see as valuable and he's shining a light on them and saying the ordinary and the everyday is is valuable and important and extraordinary you know and I think it's there's something really powerful and can really give people confidence to think about how they occupy their own lives and their own this, this the landscape around them when that happens there's something really empowering that happens um, when they see themselves or a version of themselves reflected back because it's saying you're valuable and your 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 life is important yeah yes yeah because everyone's part of that you know the big facets that all make up the the network that makes up glasgow so that's, that's that's incredibly important Okay, well, we obviously, as, as a trust, you know, Glasgow City Heritage Trust focuses on Glasgow, but the archive and what you want to do with the archive, it's also one of the aims is to influence Scotland's development, and which is like, incredibly ambitious. Um, 
And of course, there's another great Alistair Gray quote, which is carved into the Canongate wall of the Scottish Parliament through in Edinburgh, um, which is work as if you live in the early days of a better nation, which is actually adapted from the Canadian poet Dennis Lee's um, Civil Elegies. Um, But it's such a fantastic quote, really love that quote. And I have a photograph of that. Um, You know, it's one of the it's one of these fantastic quotes that's carved in Morales's building. So can you tell us a bit more about that aim and the the ambition of it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Glasgow's in an interesting place at the moment, isn't it? In terms of if you think about um, what has sort of defined Glasgow um, creatively or aesthetically over the last sort of couple of decades it's probably been Macintosh and obviously what's happened with the art school with the kind of two fires that happened there kind of key sort of asset has been lost I know they're talking about rebuilding it but still I think there's an opportunity to think to reimagine Glasgow and I don't see anyone better than reimagine it through than the lens of Alistair Gray because it's you know it's also getting away from this idea of a lone genius because he's not he's part of a community and that's part of something that we're really passionate about doing at the archive is um telling the stories of many other lives that were intertwined with his some are well known in their own right too so of course you can talk about Alistair um creatively and from a literary perspective and think about Liz Lockhead and Bernard McClaverty and Tom Leonard and James Kelman and this peer group and Agnes Owen who are influencing each other but you know there's the ordinary and the everyday within that too you know for example Morag you know creating that safety and that comfort for him him to be able to create within is really important and needs to be acknowledged as well. So I think there's an opportunity to reimagine what it is to be. And I think that makes it way more accessible to people too, because it's not talking about someone working in isolation. They're a product of their environment and from a web of influence um, and people, a network around them. Um, But I also think that also goes back to education and how... um, how we think about ourselves um, creatively but um, and, and how we want to be as a nation moving forward too. I think there definitely needs to be more done in terms of, if you look at uh, particularly sort of primary and secondary school, what's what's taught and highlighted within our, our, cre- our creative history, it's Macintosh and it's Burns. And I don't think that's good enough. I think we need to do better. Completely and, Completely agree. and I also think with Alistair, you know, in a way with Burns, you know, Burns is a complex character and the more research goes on we realize that this chocolate box or you know shortbread tin version of him is way more complex and layered and I think what is so important because of who Alistair was he lived his life and he made work by his principles and one of those was being honest and telling the truth and I we have to be honest about his life too and the best and the worst within that and I think that's the only way that we can really then think about um you know who we want to be collectively um, and and nationally moving forward. So I think there's huge huge opportunities within the city and beyond um, to to embed not just Alistair but this kind of web of network around him. But also, if I look at like Ireland and Southern Ireland, what how they've done it, particularly if you look at sort of the Museum of Irish Literature um, in Dublin and how they've used. James Joyce as a kind of starting point, um, how jo- Joyce's relationship with the city, but also the kind of web of influence that's happened since is, then. It's an intriguing parallel. Yeah, and, and not, but also um, 
that, how that's a kind of catalyst for others, but there, there's new ways of looking at the city. So I'm not saying we're fixated on Alistair. He's a starting point, but it continues. And it's a, he's part of a continuum. His, um, his work was made in a continuum with things that had happened prior to him. And it's only right to continue that from him onwards as well. Yes, I completely get where you come from. I, I get very frustrated with Macintosh. I mean, I, I love Macintosh's work. He's, he's incredibly interesting. But, you know, you can't just tease him out as this lone genius. And I used to get frustrated when I first arrived in Glasgow, Macintosh would be describing it, would be described as this lone flower kind of blooming in this kind of industrial wasteland, which is like, no, you've completely misunderstood what Glasgow is about. And you can't, you can't divorce somebody from the context. You just can't do it. And it's like, you know, what about Margaret MacDonald? And what about his circle of mm-hmm. friends? And, yeah. you know, there are all of these networks you, you have to appreciate. Absolutely. And I think that's something to be said about what gets, you know, what gets disappeared and what doesn't, right? That's what we were talking about earlier. And, you know, I can see that living through a legacy in real time, how those things, you know, that how those things can easily get um, buffered and removed and the narrative can go off. You know, I think it's so, but what, because of who Alistair was and the way he made and also because he built that into his work, didn't he? That honesty and that exposing of himself that we can't, we can't not acknowledge that that's written into and drawn into everything he's done. So to be really truthful refreshing. to the work. Yeah. It, it, I think it's, it's makes it way more accessible because it's not say he, he, you know, we're all flawed human beings trying our best, but that's way more interesting to put that front and centre and to own that than to try and buffer it and create a narrative from it that just becomes so far removed from the reality um, and many people's experience of that too. Very much. Okay, well, take, taking that as a starting point, then obviously Alistair kind of he inspired so many kind of Scottish writers and artists. Um, you've kind of touched on that whole network. But in particular, I wanted to focus in on the remarkable talent of Agnes Owen, who I think is a really fascinating figure. Um, And can you tell us more about that kind of relationship and how all that came about? Yeah, so I've been really honoured to work with Agnes's son, John Crosby, over the last year. And what we're we're going to be doing uh, this year is setting up an Agnes Owen's archive within Alistair's. And uh, I'm really keen, obviously, to extend that for other people moving forward. So Alistair's um, archive would almost be an umbrella with these other kind of collections and archives sitting within it. Uh, so that's a good way of talking about the kind of web of influence and in, 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 in a very physical way, being able to see that. Um, but um, Agnes was um, a, a, a woman who had a, a real lived experience throughout her life. She'd had sort of two marriages, seven children. She'd had a lot of trauma. Uh, one of her sons had, uh, was murdered when he was 19. She never really recovered from that. She was someone who, I guess, creativity in that pathway into writing hadn't really been open to her. She didn't go to university. She worked secretarial cleaning, sort of menial jobs. And she'd in her 50s, she'd gone to a, an evening class that Liz Lockhead was running. And I think Liz had read a text she, she'd written and just thought she was um it was a really distinct and unique voice and so met she met Alistair and she Liz I guess brought her into the fold of other writers who um she was working alongside like James Kelman and Tom Leonard and Alistair and Alistair in particular um you know well what what I can see from the material that we have on both sides is this very particular and supportive friendship that they had he um really encouraged her um he you know drew the covers for all her um 
books. He really helped her kind of get an agent and get published. He also paid for her um, drafts to be typewritten up, to be sent to publishers as well. Um, and, you know, he's not he's not got a lot of money, but he's seeing how important and also how she is from uh, her economic position, marginalised, and how can he use his position um, for, for good and for support. But what is fascinating within all of this, it's not a, he's not, um, it's not a one-sided thing. He's sending her versions of his books. She's editing, commenting on them. It's a reciprocal relationship where he has got the utmost respect for who she is as a writer and is trying as much as he can to help support and encourage that. But that's that's been reciprocated on her side too. But she is, you know, overlooked because, you know, like um, as we we're talking about, who 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 are those voices get that get chosen to be fixed and who who doesn't? Um, you know, also these things are complicated by estates, by wills, by dependents. Um, so. I'm really glad that um, obviously John and I are working together on that to try and um, redress that because she, you know, she's been, she passed away over kind of 10, 10 years ago and almost 10 years ago. And I think there's a real opportunity to make that connection between her and Alistair, but also for her work to be more widely known. I know more recently, Douglas Stewart, who wrote Shuggy Bain and Young Mungo has sort of cited her as an influence. Other writers um, who know her work are kind of uh, recognising that. But like anything, if you don't know it, if her work's not imprint and accessible, how, how do you find that and access it? So um, I'm really excited about that work. And also because within the deposit that's has dropped in there's some unpublished material too so I think there's going to be really um exciting potential to kind of come from that as well but um an inspiring woman I never met her but again I feel like I'm forming this relationship with someone through learning about them through others and it's a real privilege it sounds like a fantastic education resource then Yes, um, obviously at the moment we've had people, we've been um, tentatively telling people on our social media that we're, you know, we've got this um, initial Agnes deposit and material and even in that short period of time we've had quite a few researchers and creatives who've been really interested in, because they're like, oh Agnes Owens, you know, a friend of a friend told me about her, I've only read a couple of things or I've heard about her but again, it's like we are saying earlier, it's about access, isn't it, for this material and not just physically but digitally being able to sort of share that and build it up to so hopefully um over the course of this year that will become more um public facing and people will be able to see what we have and how we're starting to grow that collection um of agnes and obviously there's plans that we'd like to do it's her centenary in 2026 so there's plans around how to kind of celebrate um and bring her work to a kind of wider audience um that we're working on at the moment too fantastic okay well moving on from that and obviously glasgow can be quite a dream day, you know, Jewish place, but you've got um, your, your Grey Day, which is this annual festival of Alistair's work. So the first one took place in 25th of February to mark the 40th anniversary of the publication of Lanark in 1981. Um, and unfortunately, you know, our podcast isn't going to air until after your third annual Grey Day. But can you tell us more about, you know, how you go about celebrating this and turn that into an event? Yeah. Of course. So um, the first Grey Day, as you said, was um, the, the reason we chose the 25th of February because it was because it, it coincided with the publication of Lanark and that 2021 marked the 40th anniversary. So this was um, a, a, um, a day, an annual day where we can get together and celebrate 
um, Alistair, uh, but really focus on the work because he was always, as much as he was a fascinating character and many people have got lots of interesting stories about him, he always wanted the focus to be on the work. So it's a way of coming together, a bit like Bloomsday with James Joyce and to celebrate Alistair and the Wide Descent. So the first one was obviously online. It was a virtual celebration because we were in the midst of lockdown. Of COVID, but this yes. is a project that um, started with Canongate, his Scottish publishers. Um, and also we had Noi Riki, who are an events-based organisation who del- helped us deliver a Grey Day broadcast, which is available online. You can get, you can look at look at it through um, the archives uh, YouTube channel if you're interested. Last year we were able to physically come together uh, and to celebrate it, and of course we had to celebrate it at Oramore. There's nowhere better to do uh, a, an Alistair Grey themed event than at Oramore under his kind of masterwork of the auditorium. Um, and again, and again, like we had, we focused last year's on Dante on his last uh, body of work that he made, the Dante trilogy that was produced just before he died. So we had um, Liz Lockhead and Holly McNeish and Val McDermott and we had sort of musical elements too. And we're following a similar format for this for this year. Um, we're having a few more readers, music, some film, but we're focusing it on poor things because poor things um, is going to be, is being turned and will be um, screened in May. Uh, it's a major motion picture that the uh, director, Yorgos Lanthimos, has uh, been working on. So it's coming out, it's going to be premiered at Cannes in May. And so we're hoping that it will be, you know, you talked about, Neil, at the start that you read Lanark. I would never say to people if they don't know else to great to start in Lanark because I think it's such <laughs> a, it, I think once you've got what he's doing, it's complex. So I would always say start on poor things. It's a manageable. You can see a lot of what he's doing on a, on a more expanded and more nuanced, nuanced way in Lanark, but it's a good manageable starting point. It, for those who don't know, it's a reworking of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, but set in a Victorian Glasgow. So um, it will be fascinating to uh, you know to celebrate that on Grey Day. We're also working on a digital project that uh, really roots uh, that book into the city because I haven't seen Lanthimos's script and it wasn't filmed in Glasgow, it was filmed in Croatia. So I'm not sure how many of the Scottish or Glaswegian references come in so it's important to root it back into the city and to the people and places that help shape it really sure yeah how, yeah how you could divorce Alistair Gray from that that's that that's gonna be very interesting to see it will be it will be <laughs> okay well what's what's next for the archive I mean you've said that the archive is kind of built for the future so you know what new commissions and collaborations are, are being inspired by Alistair's work oh um Great question. Well, there's a few things. One of the big things in terms of the organisational development, in terms of building it for the future, is that we are, uh, you know, we've just appointed our board and we're, we've got charitable status, and that's really now laying a strong foundation for the future. So we went through a process of um, doing a call out for trustees, and we've got um, fabulous five new board members that we've been over the course of this week sharing on social media who they are. So I'm really hopeful for they've all got great expertise in archives, collections, fundraising, governance. But also rooting that back into uh, reflecting Alistair's values and his vision really which last year I did quite a lot of work creating the organisational strategy which really sets up the organisation in the short and longer term as well but as you say like you know creatively responding to Alistair's work has been at the heart of what we've done from the beginning and we've been um, largely um, working on commissions with Strathclyde Creative Writing Department so in uh, 2021 we worked with the poet 
Joanna Adcock, who um, responded to Lanark. Last year, we worked with Michael Pedersen, who's a fantastic writer and poet, who wrote a, a love letter to Alistair's Green Chair. And then this year, um, she's just been in almost on residency. She's um, just about to share, actually, on Grey Day, some of her outcomes. We had the fantastic writer and journalist Chicha Ramswamy, who came in and wrote a series of micro-essays about, um, about uh, the archive and various narratives. So she picked up on a narrative of Morag and of Agnes Owens and of the location around the archive at the, the canal too. Um, really inspiring to work alongside Chitra. Her book Homelands, I don't know if you've read it, but... Not yet. It's on my list to read, so it's kind of highly recommended. Yeah, it, it, I would highly recommend it. It's, again, a lot about what we're talking about, what narratives, you know, who who do we choose to um, remember and who has disappeared. And um, it's, a, it's, it's a, a fascinating book and really worth a read. So that's been really inspiring to work with her. We've got other... Um, series of commissions in the pipeline because next year is 2024 and it's Alistair's uh, would have been his 90th birthday so we're really trying to route the archive more into fix it into the city and also make connections because a lot of people I think when they come to the archive they say oh of course I've been into Oranmore I've read Lanark I didn't connect that that was the two it was the same person so I think there's a lot more that we can do and the city can do in terms of um, fixing and making the connection between what exists um, in the city already so that's in in the short term some of the work that we're um looking at too fascinating okay well that brings us on to our final question which um quite often is the most difficult question and that is what is your favorite building in glasgow or unthank and what would it tell you if its walls could talk such a hard question and obviously i thought about this in terms of my own personal perspective but i feel i'm here uh, representing Alistair and the archive and I think what I wanted to think about was what is a building that um, in many ways I didn't know much about um, and has been revealed to me over the last few years particularly through um, looking through Alistair's material and organising it and rooting it into the landscape around it and that would be um, the little house at Applecross uh, by the Firth and Forth Canal. Um, I have looked for many many years at Cowcaddens, the painting that Alistair made and never noticed the top right corner in that little building and that area and now I see it every day. I look out there and I look in uh, the ledger and the sketches and studies and I see versions of that house drawn from different perspective, perspectives and angles and distorted in that way that only Alistair Gray can kind of do and it sits right outside my window and I feel like I've learned so much about that building and I also would love to I mean of course I'm sort of coveting it for a public facing <laughs> version of the Alistair Gray archive but I also am thinking wow if those walls could talk it would have seen uh, a much younger Alistair Gray you know walking over the bridge because that's the bridge the put the quote that you mentioned at the start of the program Neil that's the bridge that you walk over at Applecross that comes from that saw McAlpine walk over and the little bit that goes up by Applecross house is the route that they go up to to the viewpoint ah, so I feel okay, right okay I've got I've got my bearings now yep yeah so <laughs> yeah. as you walk around that house you're walking in the his, you know you're walking in the footsteps of Alistair Gray but of Duncan Thaw 
um, of all these versions of Glasgow too. And I would love to be. I would love if that building could talk and it could remember looking out and seeing him wandering around that area with his pen and pencil and easel and drawing. And um, I, it's one of these things because we've got photographs from that um, the time that Alistair was drawing um, that building in the sixties and and seventies too. And the bridge is the same. The houses, the whiskey bond is still there, obviously too. But if you look right and left, the landscape of the city is completely altered. And these are almost like these um, portals back to a period of time, but are still fixed now and for the future. So that would be the building that I felt seemed really appropriate to think about. It's a really nice choice. It's a lovely wee house that um, um, Scottish canals have some kind of good... I think they're using it as a wedding venue. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the idea at the moment. But it'd be um, much better as the Alistair Grey archive, isn't it? <laughs> You're bringing your pitch. <laughs> yes. Um, I think, I have a feeling Thomas Telford might have lived in that house. Oh. Because it was part of, I think, when he was planning the canal. Uh -huh. um, I think that was where he was based. And it was the Harbour Master's house as well, because there was a whole basin that sat in front of it, which has now been infilled. That's so right. So it's like, you know, it, it's, it, I mean, it actually does sum up Glasgow really well, because you've got this artifact that has stayed there for, you know, centuries. But every, the whole landscape around it is completely altered. Yes. And it's virtually yeah. unrecognisable. I know. So, and it's yeah. like a portal back into time, isn't it? Very, it's very like, much. Yeah. Yes, yes. No, it's good. good choice. On the buildings at risk register for years as well. Oh, has it? So, okay. Yeah, yeah. But now, now rescued. So it's been given. It's been given a new, a new purpose. Yeah, there's life. been definitely a, quite a lot of work do, um, done over over the last few years around that area. So, um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. You know, again, it's that's what I love about buildings, and I, um, and I guess what Alistair was doing. It's you know what we're talking about. These often unremarkable places that you know I've walked up and down that area all the time. But it's through now re really looking which I think people did over lockdown right we couldn't travel we had to really yes. look yeah you had, and, you had and to look we had to look and we noticed things that were just um, on our doorstep all the time that we were zooming past and too busy to really reflect and see the value of. And I think that's what I love about, um, I know there was there was a, the pub across the other side of the bridge that used to be there. Just, it's, it, it, you know, you're, you kind of almost reimagine a portal to the past and what life would have been like there. Very, very much. That yeah. whole area has, has really fundamentally changed. There was a cinema that sat in front of it that's as well, right. which was like a wedge-shaped cinema. I'm really quite, a, a really nice design as well and then behind that just next door to the whiskey bond there was a great kind of um it was slightly gothic school as well that's right rock and, villa yeah, yeah yeah rock villa school which is again has been completely obliterated and you're like who would demolish something that was so grand like that i know, yeah, you know i know we did yeah the whole area funda fundamentally changed so it does make you think as kind of i suppose there's a bit of uh, an element of unthank about it too because mm -hmm, it's this whole section of the city that just disappeared and everything once you get beyond the house and up the rise yes you know that whole area has just been completely flattened and it's bizarre to kind of walk around and think there used to be all of these people here and it's completely gone i know and that's what we are seeing in this photo so alistair had a series of black and white photos which it's a bit like a mural the way he's collaged it into his ledger because it almost it it's almost like you're in the centre and the, the image expands all the way around. So it's like a 360 degree view of that area. So you can see the bridge and the house and the whiskey bond with the old school in front of it. And then all the tenements that were around. You can see Pinkston in, in the distance and where the Woodside um, you know, uh, development is. That That's an old sort of gothic building there too. It's just, it's sort of... Um, mind-bending in a way because you've got these like you say these axes that fix it and are familiar and are still familiar 
whereas everything else is completely um, altered. It's um, yeah, it's really important, isn't it, to kind of notice and and again think about what has what has. Um, what has been deliberately erased from that and what has remained, really. Yeah, yeah. it's one of the things I kind of, um, in a weird way, really like about Glasgow, because unlike Edinburgh, which is, you know, is kind of very kind of um, carefully conserved and, you know, is almost kind of, Edinburgh people hate me for saying this, fossilised, um, Glasgow, because it's been through all these kind of different layers of city that kind of get built on top of each other, I just find it fascinating. And that comes across in, in Alistair Gray's work. It does. I mean, and I'd love to, you know, have more. I had um, Nori up from Lost Glasgow who gave me some great tips about, um, but I'm, I'd love to start to build up more of a kind of bank of images around that landscape and the kind of change from where Alistair was recording it up till now. So, yeah, if, if, if you know or if anyone out there knows and is interested to please get Virtu- in touch. Virtual I'd love Mitchell. To- yeah. <laughs> virtual Mitchell is just yeah, virtual you, Mitchell. Get, you, could get, yeah. you could get lost in it. So yeah, okay. <laughs> love the virtual Mitchell. I'll do that now. That'll be this afternoon. <laughs> lost in virtual Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Well, Sorsha, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking us through what the what what the aims of Alistair Grey Archive are. And yeah, best of luck. Um, Thank you. Wish you every success. And if I could pop up and visit at some point, it would be very welcome. Um, absolutely. I'd love that. And thank, thanks for your support and interest. It's a real, um, you know, it's a real privilege to be um, continuing to share Alistair's life and work with others. So, and of course, as I said, it's a free space that's open for everyone. So please, if you're interested um, or you'd like to find out more from, you know, the serious grey heads to people who know nothing about Alistair, please get in touch. I'd love to welcome you. <laughs> Oh, it would be an absolute pleasure. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Do you want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. The podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnocks.